We're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning. And I often wonder if we forget the majesty of God in our day-to-day life. I I think I forget about it on a regular basis in the place in which we live, in in the beauty of the Northwest. Uh, We just had Katie's parents out for a visit from Michigan, and if you know anything about Michigan, there are no mountains. Even though I'm from Mount Morris, there is no mountain in Mount Morris. And every time we'd get in the car and drive, he would carry on a conversation, and I could see the conversation trailing off and not paying attention when he'd see the mountain and be enthralled with it, which we kind of maybe grow just commonplace now. I don't know how long you've lived here, and you just kind of think, oh, yeah, there's this large mountain, the grandeur of it. But for him, it was captivating. Got a chance to even go up to the mountain on Wednesday to see it. I wonder if that applies to our life in, in relation to God. Looking up from our lives and, and pondering the, the grandeur, the majesty of our God. And when we do that, it gives us a fresh perspective on our future and it lifts our eyes and our thoughts above the daily grind, above the, 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 the troubles that we're facing, the discouragements possibly. Or even sets our minds correct on the joys that we have, that we're experiencing. Somehow we think it's all about us or what we've done, and it brings us back again to who God is. And, and so this morning, I want to help draw our eyes back to him in that way. You know, I ask when, I want you to think through, when was the last time you paused and you were in awe of God? When was the last time you said, wow, God, you are amazing in your, in your love and your care and your concern for me? And we, we should do that, especially as Christians. We see the mountain realizing that God created that out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. And so that, that reminder, even in the, the beauty of which we live in this, this land, this, this northwest, should relate in some ways to our God and reminding ourselves of who he is. That's one of the reasons why I had Pastor Chris read Psalm 8 this morning. It gives us that call again of who God is. Let me read it again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet." all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David writes that psalm for us. And in that psalm, he's just daydreaming about his God. He's big and he's mighty and he's worthy of our worship. And he's given us the things on earth to call our minds back to a, to a right adjustment of him, to remember God, to consider his power, to consider his majesty, to consider his grandeur. And, and I think that leads us hopefully well into John chapter 6, because in this passage, one of my favorite passages in John chapter 6 is the feeding, to the, feeding of the 5,000, or as we'll see, probably 15,000 or 20,000, feeding of a large group. And when we see this, I, th- I hope our, 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 we come away with the grandeur and the majesty of God seen through Jesus Christ. And, and, and possibly we come away thinking, man, I've grown too comfortable with God, too comfortable with 
his majesty. So we step away from the book of Nehemiah that we've been in, and we're in John chapter 6 this morning, and here is the main idea. Here's the, the, the main thrust, and, and it's not going to be on the screen because we're doing all this quickly from last night to today, okay? So here's the main idea. If you take notes, if you don't get this, you can find me afterwards and I give it to you. But the main idea is our greatest need in, lo- in this life is provided by Jesus Christ. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15 is what we're going to look at. And we're going to have three points because I love three points. The pity of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the plan of Jesus. The pity of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the plan of Jesus. So if you haven't turned there already, John chapter 6, if you're using a Bible, if you don't have one, we have Bibles in the seats. They're, they're yours to take. And if you're unfamiliar looking at a Bible, it's on page 837. Don't be ashamed to look for the, the page number, even if you go to the table of contents, that's all right. John chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 15 this morning. And the, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. And we're going to walk through this passage this morning. John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the first point I want you to see is the pity of Jesus as he looks out to these people, verses 1 through 9 here. As we begin in chapter 6, and I know we're just kind of plopping into this book. We haven't been here, so you haven't seen what's going on, so we're just kind of flying by. We're going to drop here for, for just a Sunday. But as we begin this chapter, John is a little vague of the timing of the event in his gospel. At first glance, it may seem the events in chapter 6 would be following the events of chapter 5, but if you study the book of John and you comparison through with other gospel accounts, it's really actually almost six months later that this happens when we come to chapter 6. And and the reason is, in in the gospel of John, it only covers 21 days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so when John's writing this book, he's, he's being very selective to his readers, He's writing for the highlights of Jesus' ministry for people to understand. It's also worth noting that, that this story that we'll look at this morning 
the feeding of the 5,000 is the only story shared in all four gospel accounts besides the story of the crucifixion. So that's important to note. There must be a reason why this is here, the significance of it. In Mark's gospel, we get a little bit of the background before this feeding. In Mark 6, uh, verses 30 through 34, it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And when they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. See, the people in the context of what's happening here are following Jesus in in droves and crowds, running after him. Essentially, Jesus is a rock star at this point, and what he's doing and what he's teaching and what he's talking about is so enthralling for the people, and they're flocking to him. And, and, and there's, there's a time where the disciples and Jesus need a, to step away for rest and to recoup and to even have a meal quiet. But I want you to notice, and, and as I read Mark's gospel, what is Jesus' response to the people that are flocking? He, he is tired. He's even, he's unable to eat a meal in, in peace and quiet. You guys, you know what that's like if you have kids in your house, right? To eat a meal in peace and quiet? Let me know how that goes. I look forward to that. Jesus has just got all, all of this activity coming. Good, in some ways, good, wanting to hear from him. And he's unable to get the rest. And so you think, at least I think for myself, in that moment, I, I just want to be left alone. I just need rest. And that's not what Jesus does here. You know, the disciples think the best option is, is you need to go, you need to go away. But Jesus says, no, come in. And he invites them in, and he has compassion on them. And, and why is that? Well, I think... It's verse 4. So if you have a Bible, if it's your Bible, underline verse 4. Okay? If you're borrowing your friend's Bible, well, that's all right. You can work it out with them. Verse 4, though, I think is the key here in this passage. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Why did John write that then? Why is this information helpful? Well, it's an important time for the Jewish crowd that's following him. And and John doesn't mention this for a chronological benefit. No, this is a theological benefit. Remember, John is writing this book so that we would believe and understand. If you're uncertain of the theme of the Gospel of John, you look at John chapter 20, verse 31. He, He lays it out very clearly of why he's writing this book, so that they would believe and understand in him. And so he wants us to see right here in verse 4 the point of his ministry. He wants us to see that Jesus is better than Moses. He is the Redeemer. He is the one who will remove the necessity of the Passover because he will become the lamb. He will become the one to be sacrificed. If you remember, if you recall, the Jewish Passover celebrated the exodus from Egypt And in this celebration, they would slaughter a lamb and then eat it. And in the gospel, Jesus is is said, I am the lamb of God. It's said about him. 
And, and three times it's mentioned in John's gospel. First in chapter two, when he calls himself the temple that would have to be destroyed and rebuilt, right? And then the second mention here of his relation is, is the Passover in our text this morning. The third is in chapter 11 as he gets closer to the time when the Jews would kill him. And the mention of the Passover here in John 6 definitely makes more sense if you read the rest of the chapter. So spend some time over lunch today, possibly, looking at the rest of John chapter 6, because it'll make even more sense of why he says he, this, the Passover is happening, because later in chapter 6, he's going to talk about the bread of life. But coming back to this section, coming back to our, our passage this morning, they're seated on the mountain. Jesus sees the crowd coming towards him. It's a large crowd, probably could be seen from a long distance away. 5,000 people is a lot, okay? And Jesus, knowing it's late in the day, knowing of, of what they, they have faced and what, what is to come, turns to Philip and says in verse 5, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get a little. See, Jesus lifts his eyes. He sees the people. You know, Mark's gospel that we read, he, he sees the crowd, and his response isn't annoyance. It's compassion. And see, what we learn about Jesus in this, in this moment is that when, when Jesus sees people, he doesn't see burdens. When Jesus sees people, he doesn't see opportunities to gain something. When Jesus sees people, he doesn't see issues that need to be resolved so that he can move on to more important things. When Jesus sees people, he, he sees their true spiritual needs and even sees their present physical needs. When Jesus sees people, his reaction is compassion. Sheep who are untended and unprotected and free to get into all sorts of trouble. And what a picture of sinners left to themselves who are harassed and, and, and beat up by the rabbis of that day. The people, like sheep, were, were in need of true guides and shepherds. And then Jesus and his ministry, the, the diseases and the sicknesses moved him, and he healed every kind. But he was moved even more deeply by the greatest need, the need that the multitude, the crowds did not know they had, is that they needed to be freed from their sin. And Jesus saw this. Now the question is, did his disciples see this? See, Jesus ministered greatly to the people that followed him, but he's also on a mission to train the disciples that are following him. He was always working, he was always thinking in the event that he's looking out now to, to train up these disciples because Jesus again knows what's about to happen. Right? He's about to leave. And it's all going to be on the, these, the shoulders of these men to carry on. And so Jesus had this, this focus of discipleship that he's going to help these, under, these disciples understand. And so what does he do? He singles out Pete, Philip here and he draws out his heart. It must have been that Philip was the administrator. He, he was probably something like a bean counter at this point. 
From other passages in the Gospels, we learn that Judas was the one in charge of money, so it makes sense that Philip was probably placed in, in, in some kind of a leadership of logistics. Is also familiar with the area of, of where he's at. So Jesus turns and asks him the question. And I'm sure the job that, that, that he had suited his personality. He was, he was the one who was tasked to manage the organization and protocol. I'm sure he was the guy in every meeting that would chime in when something was talked about, I'm not sure if we can do that. He's this guy that, that figured out everything and had a plan. And Jesus is testing Philip. He wasn't testing him to find out what a plan might be. He already knew what he was going to do. He was testing Philip to show Philip himself what he was like, how he thought, and, and really, ultimately, what ruled his heart. He was testing him to display himself to himself and to the other disciples and what faith should look like. And, and so he turns to Philip and asks, how do you suppose we should feed all these people? And, and I believe at this point, from what we can tell in, in, this, in John's gospel, that Philip has already, he's already done the count in his head, right? He sees the people coming in, and he's the estimator. Don't, don't hate on estimators, okay? They're good people. We need estimators, right? But he sees that. He's estimating. And he looked at the crowd and he sees the great numbers, and he sees the end of the day, what they have, and, and he sees denarii signs instead of dollar signs. And he's realistic. It was late. There's no subway then, Safeway. You can't go to the store. They're situated on a mountain. They're tired. They're looking for peace and rest. And here comes a large group of people. And his calculations are already done. Verse 7, 200 denarii. How did he have that in his mind already? He already was processed, everything. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. He'd done the calculations. They're seriously lacking in funds. And, and, and also the availability. 200 denarii would have been almost eight months wages for a normal worker in their day. It's a lot of money. The question I have on the outside, very comfortably sitting, is, Philip, weren't you there in chapter 2 when Jesus turned water into wine? I mean, that was no small feat. 150 gallons of water and making the best wine, real wine, just so you know. He was there. Some might say that, that Philip didn't know what Jesus would do, but at this point he had been around him quite a bit. He had seen Jesus heal people. He had witnessed things that are unexplainable on a human level. It's like standing before the Niagara Falls and, and, and saying, I'm really thirsty, I wish I could find some water. He had seen these things. And so why the response by Philip? I think he, he, he simply saw with human eyes and his human thinking crowded out his faith. And so he responds with open unbelief. Jesus, it can't be done. And for Philip, money and, and supplies limited his vision. The almighty denarii bound him. He lacked the faith to trust in Jesus at that moment. He's, he's so caught up with the earthbound calculations, he didn't see the opportunity that God was going to work. 
And, and what he should have said, and what he probably would say later is, Lord, just, I'll watch. You do what you're going to do. You feed them. I'm going I'm to observe and watch this, and, and, I, and I know you can do it. I, I've seen you turn water into wine at Cana, and, and I know the Old Testament, how, how God dropped manna from the sky for us to eat. So I'll just wait for you to work. But his response was, it can't be done. And before we go down the path too far, beating up on Philip, his response is usually our response when situations seem impossible. And if we're honest this morning, Philip is a lot like you and me. Maybe regularly we see with human eyes and we believe with manufactured faith. When we need supernatural eyes and supernatural faith. But Jesus doesn't condemn Philip. He's patient with him. And Andrew, well, Andrew just wants to help. Verse 8, verse 9, he says, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. He starts good, right? There's some, there's some food, but then he ends. But what are they for so many? It seems Andrew wants to, to come in with, with some amount of faith that something can happen, but ultimately he proves the same point. They both lose out here. They both have an opportunity to, to put their faith into action and watch Jesus and what he would do, and they instead rely on their own power. If you're seated here this morning and your desire or your job even right now as a leader in God's church and his program here in the local church, we need to have a vision for what the Lord can do. Not just ourselves and what people and money we have. No, our focus needs to be on Christ, not on the materials. We need to trust him. Philip was preoccupied with earthly needs and only saw impossibility. Essentially, from my vantage point, Philip knew too much math to be adventurous for Christ. The facts of the situation pushed out faith from his mind. He was so bogged down with the calculations that seemed to be common sense that this was not going to happen. And yet Jesus still works. We always have this benefit, right, as we read through the Gospels of, of looking at the story from the outside and, and looking at it and thinking, what were they thinking? I think I would have done differently. That's just pride, friends. They had Jesus right there. Why couldn't they see that Jesus could provide for what they needed? But how often, friends, do you get bogged down right now in the details of your life and the needs that you have and you begin to not trust in him but you begin to worry? Or you, you just gravitate to, to Philip. You're, you're uncertain how the bills will get paid this month and so you start doing the calculations first instead of relying on God. And you plan, and you complain, and you worry, all the while forgetting God. 
How often do we simply come to Jesus with such staunch unbelief and fear? And what situations in your life right now are you prone to trust in your own wisdom and not trust in God? And what decisions of life are you struggling to trust in Christ to provide? Friends, only you can answer that. But I'm here to encourage us together as a family to look at the power of Jesus. And that's my second point, to be encouraged by the power of Jesus. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in this place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. After Philip and Andrew's attempt to sway Jesus away from the reality of the situation, Jesus then tells them to situate the people. There's a lot of people here. The text says about 5,000 in number. Matthew's gospel, it indicates that, uh, that the number didn't include women and children. So if it's the case, we can guesstimate there's prob- over 10,000, probably close to 15,000 people in this crowd, depending upon the average family size of Jewish families then. It doesn't matter. Okay, if you want to spend your time calculating that, have at it. It was a large crowd. 5,000 people is a lot. That's what the Mariners draw every ballgame, right? Wow, I hit a nerve. Large crowd, and they're there to listen to Jesus. And this has to be one of Jesus' most public miracles. So many people there to see what he's about to do. Look again at verse 11. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. So the first thing he does is he takes the food from this boy, everyone I'm sure, in all of what's going to happen, and he gives thanks. Picture that. Jesus takes the five loaves, probably this size, Two small fish, and he gives thanks. A common Jewish form of thanksgiving would be, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Jesus prays for something that's not there. Giving thanks for something that is not currently present. So think through that, friends, the next time you're praying for what you need. Jesus prays in faith, and he thanks God, knowing that God will supply what is needed. Now, I can't help in these stories but to put myself in the position of that crowd. You know, there's, let's say there's 5,000, let's say there's 15,000 people, and, and, and imagine what's happening from their vantage point in seeing this. If you could see all the way up what's happening here. That Jesus takes these, these small loaves and these fish. Or let's, let's, let's imagine that, that it's been passed down in the crowd, right? You know, that, that telephone game, right? It's getting passed down. I would imagine myself, personally, not in the front. I'd probably be in the back. And my first response would be, there's not going to be enough. I brought my wife out here, my four daughters. We had to sit in the back. I told her we needed to leave earlier, and she didn't listen to me. And they're serving food, and there's not going to be enough. 
We should have sat closer to Jesus. And then, for my pride, the Lord allows the disciples to bring the food back, and it gets closer and closer. You know, and you're hungry, and you're tired, and you've been there, you're, 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 you're considering what he's saying, and, and now all you hear is your stomach growling, and the kids complaining, and you just want to eat now, right? You've experienced this at church potlucks, right? At the back of the line? And they come and it's full. How's that possible? And you eat like you've never eaten before. You know, at this point, it's not a matter of just conserving. You're just going at it because you're hungry. And, it, and it's just there. It's full. There's so much food. And in that moment, you realize, how could I doubt this? I mean, there's so many people here. Maybe you're here this morning, and you don't believe this story is true. You don't consider yourself a Christian. You think these stories are just, they're great to share. You know, maybe encouraging your kids, get a picture book out. This is just fun. This is amazing, like a movie, you know, so far-fetched. I mean, Jesus really couldn't take five loaves of barley bread and two fish and multiply it for so many people. That just seems too far-fetched. I mean, there's been many, friends, many throughout the years, especially of liberal theology, that attempt to explain away this miracle. See, the tactic they see is they look at these miracles in the Gospels as, as, as not as genuinely divine explanations of who God is, but, but they're just more like a moral, moral ethical breakthrough for people to now understand and then emulate for their life. And so there have been scholars that have reinterpreted this miracle by saying that Jesus didn't actually feed 5,000 men with, with five loaves and two fish. No, that's impossible. No, what really happened, they say, is that Jesus shows the example of love. And that inspired others in the crowd to get the food out that they were hiding. And, and for them, it's a miracle of generosity. It's, it's divine multiplication by everyone else doing their work, doing their part. And, and because of this, we're, we're now called on to give to food banks and to give of our need. Now listen, giving to food banks and giving food to others is a good thing. I am not putting that down. But that's not what's happening here. The plain reading of the text is this really happened. And the point in all of this is, is for you to see that Jesus provides for you your greatest need. The picture of the Passover, the picture of the food, the picture of the bread are only pictures because your greatest need today is not to be fed bread and fish. You may think that your greatest need today is food and shelter or the right job or that perfect spouse. 
And those needs are real. I'm not saying they're not, but they're not crucial. Your greatest need, friends, is to be forgiven of your sins against a holy God. This story and leading up to the end of chapter 6 is continuing to point people that their greatest need is not the material things. That Jesus came to save sinners. And he came to to this world by acting as God provision for their sins. He told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says this, and Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He's pointing to himself as the provision. He says that. And just as the bronze snake that the Jews would understand was lifted up as a provision for the Israelites who were bitten by poisonous serpents, so I am here to provide life. And our response to, to these stories and many throughout the Gospels is to re- trust in Jesus and to trust in him for salvation that he provides because of the cross and to trust in him through faith. Friend, if you're here and you've never placed your faith or you just can't remember, perhaps you grew up in a Christian home, perhaps you've heard the gospel your whole life and yet you've never considered this for yourself. Perhaps your parents, meaning well, just wanted an answer Just give me the the Sunday school answer. But you've never considered your own life, your own sins, in light of God's holiness. Friends, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to, to recognize who you are. That we're sinful to the core, every single one of us here. And the only way of salvation is by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, what he accomplished perfectly on the cross. And if you have questions about this, I would love to talk to you. And if you're fearful to talk to me, just look at the people in the room that are smiling right now because they know what I'm talking about and they would love to talk to you because God has redeemed them. So we've seen the pity of Jesus, the power of Jesus, last is the purpose, the purpose of Jesus. The food has been given out. Everyone was given all that they need. They're, they're full, they're stuffed. In the second half of verse 12, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who eaten. What significance does this make? Well, God doesn't waste anything. Collecting what was left over at the end of the meal was a Jewish custom. And, these, and there was 12 baskets, which that's significant, the fragments of the bread and fish. I, I believe that the fact that there were 12 basketfuls left over meant that each one of these disciples would carry this back to Jesus. Each one of them would remember this miracle. Each one of them stood almost certainly, with Jesus to see how small it was at the beginning and then at the end carried back basketfuls 
So it would stick, it would lodge in their minds of who this Christ, who this man was. And they would enjoy as much as they wanted. And then we see the response from the people. When the people, verse 14, saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come to this world. I believe that's, that's true. They saw it and thought, this is the one. He is the one who's, who's come to this world. And, and our first reaction might be, they're ready to place their faith in Jesus Christ, but that's not what happens. And how do we know that? Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew. Jesus is God, so he knows everything about us, whether we open our mouth or not. And he perceives to know that what they want from him isn't what he's given. See, the people had a misplaced enthusiasm. They're not, they're not wanting Jesus for who he really is. They want a vending machine. They want a, a genie who's going to give them their heart's desires. I think it's important for us even today to apply that to our own culture. Many people want Jesus, and they have great enthusiasm for Jesus, but the Jesus that they're excited for is not the real biblical Jesus. He's someone else, someone of their imagination. They want a Jesus that's morally good. They want a politically conservative Jesus. They want Jesus that's a socialist. They want Jesus who's a capitalist. They want Jesus who's a revolutionary. They want Jesus however they want to make him so that they can receive him. But Jesus doesn't come and fit into our mold, no matter how bad we want it. No, Jesus resists the allure of a kingdom without a cross. Friends, there's always suffering before glory. Not just for Jesus, but for those who follow him. Suffering then glory. Jesus didn't come into the world just to give them bread. He came to become the bread. Do you see Jesus as your giver? Or do you see him as your gift? This morning, we're going to turn our attention in the last remaining moments to communion. And we come to the communion table, to the Lord's table, to remember what Christ has done for us. We, we come to the table and we come to remember that our sins are shown for what they really are before a holy God. We come to remember who Jesus truly is, that Jesus is the one who gave up his life as a ransom for us. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who lived a sinful or sinless life here on earth. He lived a sinless life here on earth who willingly and lovingly offers himself as a payment for our, us. Jesus who walked through the streets having 
his body bloodied, and who was nailed to a tree that he spoke into existence for our sins. Jesus, who died, was buried in a tomb, and he rose again on Sunday and appeared to as many as 500. Jesus, then, who ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father, who's making intercession for his children. Jesus, who's coming again with a trumpet blast, and all the dead in Christ will be raised again to life. Jesus, who's coming for his bride. This is the one that we remember this morning. And so as participants of the Lord's Supper, we're to focus our minds on Jesus and to think through of the historical work of what he's done, dying for our sins on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul reminds us, do this in remembrance of me, the same words Jesus spoke. And so we do the physical act of eating and drinking And we're to do the mental act of remembering. That means we're to consciously call to mind the person of Jesus as he once lived and the work of Jesus as he died and rose again and what that work means for our forgiveness of sins. And so when we gather as Christians for worship and we gather to partake of this meal, we're coming together to remember all that Christ has done for us. We're saved from eternal death, and we're given new life. We're given a new name, a new frame, and a place with him in the heavenlies. And our faith in Christ is strengthened then, friends, when we partake of this meal together as a a covenant family of God. And we remind ourselves, one another, of this covenant that we have with the Lord. So this is very significant for us. See, in this meal, we not only hear with our ears what he has done for us, but we also see and we smell and taste and touch the tokens of his suffering and death on our behalf. Jesus is teaching us that just as bread and drink nourish our temporal life here, so his crucified body and poured out blood truly nourish our spiritual life. So the Lord's Supper is very significant for us as Christians. So, as the ushers come now to service this meal together, I do have one warning. This meal is for Christians because only Christians understand and accept the gospel. So if you're not a a baptized Christian, not faithfully connected to a church family, then we encourage you to not partake of this meal this morning. Our ushers are going to be handing out the communion elements this morning, and so I want to encourage you to wait until everyone has uh, the, the crackers and the juice before we partake together. I'm going to pray, and then they're going to hand things out here. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. His body and blood shed for us on the cross redeems us from our sins and places us in the family of God. So may we remember that as we eat together as a church this morning.